What do mums love about Focus on the Family's Clubhouse magazine? I love watching her have so much fun, and I know that every page is pointing her to the Lord. I love that my son teaches me about Jesus from what he learned in Clubhouse magazine. I love watching them get all excited when they run to the mailbox each month. To order your magazine subscription to Clubhouse or Clubhouse Junior, please visit us at clubhousemagazine.ca. That's clubhousemagazine.ca. No matter what age your children are at, it's never too late to start talking to them and encouraging them and having these kind of conversations. And we don't want to live in fear. I will not help my children. I'll raise fearful kids if I respond in fear. Or I can raise competent, equipped kids if I am just factual, casual. I have a conversation just like you and I are having. I'm not eliciting fear. I'm I'm making it sound like no topics off limits. We can talk about anything, and mom and dad expect these things to happen, and we want you to know what to do. Well, Julie Lowe is our guest again today on Focus on the Family. Thanks for joining us. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, I was really impressed with what Julie had to share yesterday, and I'm looking forward to what we're going to learn today. I said at the end of the program, you know, these are the tidbits I wish I would have had when the kids were younger, Mm -hmm. and that's why we're doing this, so we can give you these great insights as you're parenting your children. Pass it along to your friends and make sure that everybody... Uh, in your schools, aware of this great resource, Safeguard Shielding Our Homes and Equipping Our Kids, which is really the key, is how to equip our kids to live in a world that will come after them and mm-hmm. try to tear them down. Yeah. Yeah, this is a really important conversation for every mom and dad. It's never too late, and Julie Lowe is uh, imminently qualified to share from her heart and her expertise. Uh, She's a licensed professional counselor and a faculty member at Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Uh, She has a number of books, and the one that forms the foundation of our conversation today and was part of the conversation last time as well is called Safeguards, Shielding Our Homes and Equipping Our Kids. And uh, we've got details about Julie and her work and this book at our website. That's focusonthefamily.ca. All right, Julie, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, Before we get into today's specifics, let's take a minute and recap. Uh, For example, what do you mean by safeguards? Let's start there. Yeah, safeguards is meaning I'm putting up protective measures to uh, help my kids, to protect them. I can't keep them from every danger in the world, nor should I. Um, That's when we try to control our children. But I can put up safeguards to help them, to shield them from some of the darts that will be thrown their way, while also equipping them to know how to protect themselves. Yeah, and the balance of those, as we talked about last time, safeguard is really 100% when they're young Mm -hmm. and, you know, up through the three-, four-, five-year-old phase. And then you're beginning to equip them kind of at that same time too. But when they're in that six-, seven-, eight-year-old phase – and they're not going to be in your view 24-7, you've got to make sure that they've got some good discernment skills, good uh, confidence to be able to make the right choices in those moments. Yeah, yeah. it starts with friend groups. So even children as, as young as five and six learn good from evil. They learn uh, people that are kind and people that are doing unkind things. And so I'm using child uh, developmentally appropriate language for their age, but those same skills will serve them at 14 and at 16 and at 23 when they're in college if we're teaching them how to discern good relationships from bad ones. Yeah. 
probably one of the scariest things for a parent is the potential that someone might abuse my child in some way. Uh, but the reality is it does happen, mm-hmm. um, and it's maybe not likely, but there's always the potential of that. Um, what can we teach our children age appropriately to help prevent that from happening? Yeah, That's a big question. It is, and we, we <laughs> often wait till like kids are preteens instead of starting, even when they're young, teaching appropriate names of body parts and saying nobody should touch you in your private parts, nor should you touch anybody else. We're having those kind of conversations that aren't, um, they aren't taking away our children's innocence. It's actually equipping them and making things age appropriate. And as they get older, we're giving examples of bathing and babysitters and should a babysitter help you in the restroom, things like this that as they get older, it transfers to bigger things like peer groups and dating and consent and all these the language that we use for older kids um, that if we're teaching them when they're young, if somebody makes you uncomfortable, we always want to hear it. So I'm not using the word inappropriate because that's hard for kids to know what's appropriate appropriate or inappropriate gray Gray area grooming grooming uh things are very hard for kids to discern but if i say if somebody's making you uncomfortable mom and dad always want to hear go tell another adult and we'll help you figure it out then we're always teaching them to pay attention we're teaching them so the language i'm using is not scary language not alarmist mentality not explicit yeah yeah but it's very much learn to pay attention to what people are you know what i like about that that idea of just being uncomfortable i think People of all ages understand that. Yeah. You know when you're uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. One of the things you pointed out yesterday that I want to resurface uh, for a moment is this idea that most harm in a child's life will come from somebody known to them, not right. a, a stranger. And right. we hit that stranger danger right. myth. It is true. Some strangers are evil people doing right. evil things. You need to be aware of that. Right. But most likely, and I think the number is something like 90% of the time, it's someone known by the child that yeah. may harm them. Yeah. So that makes it even more difficult for right. a child to understand boundaries. Right. So you can see why discernment and discerning and evaluating words and actions are more important than character. Because the people we know are likely to be people that could harm us. That I want to discern what they're telling me to say or do uh, or what they're saying or doing. And if you give kids that freedom to do that, you raise kids that are very thoughtful. Now, sleepovers, huge category. Yeah. I was talking to Jane yesterday about this, knowing that we were going to talk today, just because we kind of, we were pretty tough on sleepovers. It didn't happen until mid-teenage years, like 14, 15, when we knew the kids could defend themselves and protect themselves, and we knew the families well, and we didn't have much concern. Yep because the environment we felt would be reasonably safe, et cetera. Not that anything's foolproof, I get that. But speak to the sleepover philosophy, I guess, if we could call it that, in today's world that I think leans a little more dangerously than it used to be with all the input that we have. Yeah. That is so hard because, man, people have strong opinions about sleepovers. Either very pro-sleepover or very negative. You should never have it. You should never have it in your house. And maybe... 
both a counselor, but we also, we were foster parents. We have an open home uh, kind of ministry attitude that we were having people over. Um, and I didn't want to squelch that. How do you talk about yeah. not having sleepovers, which we shied away from them with our kids for sure, for safety reasons. So I think you can fall anywhere on the spectrum. But the important things to know is there are very few benefits of sleepovers today, and there are a whole lot of potential negatives. Huh. So even the electronics, no matter how wonderful another family is, kids have access to electronics in the middle of the night. Usually nothing good is happening in the middle of the night with electronics, only negative things. And if even I trust this family, their their older brother can have a friend who's over with a cell phone and all kinds of stuff happening. And so I think it's a wisdom issue. I would never judge a parent where they fall on this category, but I would say there's a whole lot of red flags to why I would do it today. Mm. I can remember, the. it's so funny because one of our sons, we were talking about being out after midnight. I yeah. said, well, nothing good happens, <laughs> happens after, after midnight. midnight. And he said to me, do you have empirical data that supports that? <laughs> I mean, I remember going, you little smart aleck. Not at my fingertips, but I mean, that's where his head was at, really. Because, yeah. you know, I'm not sure if that's true, Dad. <laughs> it was pretty funny. But it's generally true. Later yeah. the night, the, the more mistakes can be made. And, Julie, how do you guide a parent to kind of hold to that principle if they say, I'm not going to have sleepovers for my kids. We're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds kind of prudish. Maybe it's countercultural. How do they stand up for their conviction without sounding judgmental? Yeah, well, I I mean, I talk a good talk, but that was always painful for me to tell another parent, I'm sorry, we don't do sleepovers. And then if they asked why, then I felt a little more uncomfortable, like, well, I don't want to sound like a yeah, a prude or, or somebody who's holier than thou. And so I found it hard, and I, I teach on these things. And so I would, I would just approach it apologetically. You know, I just, I hear too much. We just lean in this direction. And so I always talked that way. So it sounded humble. It was humble. I, everybody's different. Um, and I would say, listen, we'll, we'll pick our son up from the party at 10 or at 11. Um, so they can come to the birthday party. Just can't spend the night. And there's been a few exceptions. And here's where you know, we go away traveling, where are the kids going to stay? Or somebody spends the night at our house, things like that, where I'm always measuring, all right, how much certainty can I give that this is a safe situation? Mm-hmm. And that's where I think wisdom keeps coming in and discernment keeps coming in, that we can come up with hard and fast rules, like stranger danger, like never do this, never do that. But then we're not equipping our kids to evaluate. And I just think that's not helpful. Yeah, it's so true. Cyberbullying is a, another common thing. I didn't experience that with my boys. They never really lifted anything up to me. I would ask them about it, not to where it became a problem, you know, and and maybe that's part of this question too. How can you overdo it as a parent every day saying, did anybody cyber bully you? Did anybody, you know, cause that can put fear into your kids. Yeah. Like they'll be now on the lookout for everything, yeah. but you know, probably once every three to four weeks, I might've just said, is everything good with your uh, friendships, your, your phone, you know, anybody picking on you, yeah. something like that. Just what I would call like a check-in. Mm-hmm. Speak to that really quick. Is that something that's wise? or? Yeah, that's wonderful. And I've learned that though my kids may be hesitant to share what's going on uh, in their own world, they're really free to share what's going on in their peer groups. So I'll often start with, so tell me what... 10th graders are talking about these days. What kind of trouble are 10th grade boys getting into? And boom, you get it. Boom, I get everything everybody's <laughs> doing. And so I'm like, hmm, this is what you're being exposed to. That's and then funny. I'll say, well, what do you think about that? There I am putting it in their lap. Then I'm thinking, well, what would you, what would you do if you were in that situation? 
And if I have a good enough relationship, they might even say, well, mom, I was in that situation. Mm. Or, well, somebody did do something like that. But if we never ask the questions, and so there's a wisdom in how you ask it, right? A creativity in saying, let me ask about your peer group, because you're more likely to share about them. But then I move closer and closer to them. Right. In fact, your your daughter, Brittany, had a brush with something like this. How, how did she manage it? How did you manage it with her? Yeah, my daughter Brittany is a young adult. She works at a local daycare and took a break and and went to a coffee shop, was sitting outside in her car reading, taking a break. Middle of the day, probably, I don't know, three o'clock in the afternoon, sunny, busy area. And as she was pulling her car out of her parking spot, an elderly gentleman, probably her grandfather's age, walked towards her. And so she assumed maybe Mm. she had a a flat tire or something like that. And so she, she rolled the window down. And he said something to the effect, um, I've been watching you for 20 minutes. I, I like the way you look and threw something in her lap. And she thought that was weird. And she starts rolling up her window. And as she drove away, she looked down and there was a $50 bill in her lap. Mm. Now, there is no way I could have predicted that kind of situation. Out of all the what-if scenarios, I never would have thought to say, Brittany, if this happens. Um, but if you, as a parent, are walking through how to evaluate, the irony is, as the day went on, she got more and more upset about it. Mm. Because the realization of what how uncomfortable and inappropriate that was right. kept hitting in and sinking in even deeper and deeper. And it became this, this great teaching opportunity that, see, honey, these things can happen. Mm-hmm. And they can happen in broad daylight. Yeah. Now, what would you do next time? Is there, what have you learned? What would you do differently? Not that you did anything wrong. Matter of fact, you did everything right in one respect. But now you're aware. And so it makes for great conversation to help her think through if somebody made me uncomfortable like that again, would I get out of the car and go call a police officer? What would I have done? Yeah. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Do you worry about tomorrow? Does the future feel uncertain? Is the past too painful to bear? Focus on the Family Canada is here to help, so you never have to walk alone. Every morning, our staff lift up your prayer requests. If your burdens are too much to carry on your own, you can request a free one-time call with one of our counselors at focusonthefamily.ca today. That's focusonthefamily.ca. We're here to help. Financial Moments with Tom Copeland. For those people with a lot of debt, here's my recommendation. Learn God's Word on finances. Most Christians violate biblical financial principles unknowingly. For example, Easy Credit today encourages people to use debt freely. However, God's directive is to use as little debt as possible and to pay it off as quick as possible and be content with His provision. Luke 3.14 says, Be content with your pay. Number two, list out all of your debts, including the repayment terms, maturity date, and interest rates. Number three, implement a budget to ensure that you spend less than you earn and you have a surplus to pay down debt and save for future needs. In the parable of the tower, Christ admonished us to plan ahead. Number four, use your monthly surplus to pay down your most expensive debt first, which is usually your credit cards, and then pay down your other debts. And going forward, track your expenses to know your financial facts, and you'll also become more conscious of where your money is going, so you'll likely spend less. To learn more, check out copelandfinancialministries.org. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. You know, another uh, item beyond the bullying, the things we've talked about, is just, just social media generally. Uh, we 
were really successful in delaying smartphones with our boys. And somebody had given us great advice sitting at this table that I use, which was delay it as long as you can. Yeah. Just just that simple. Yep. And so I remember early on, you know, they're probably 12, 13. Dad, everybody has phones but me. Yep. You know, that kind of thing. And I'd say, oh, you know, let me talk to your mom about that. <laughs> you know, I just let it go. <laughs> Maybe not wise. I wasn't <laughs> lying, but I, I hadn't talked to her yet. So six months would go by or a year, and they'd say, you know, did you ever talk to mom about the phone? And, you know, I forgot, but let me let me get back into that. Another three months would go by. Well, we ended up, I think our oldest was 17 and started to drive, and that's why, you know, having a phone that could manage location was important. And then Troy, of course, got in a little better as the little brother, so he got his device at 15, you know. But but that's one of the things I learned is just delay it as long as you can yeah. and don't buy into the everybody's got it but me routine. And, you know, maybe just say directly, we'll talk about that another year from now, but I'm not sure when. I'm not making that commitment, mm-hmm. but we'll talk about it next year. That's not a bad way to delay. No, I find it really unhelpful when parents say, what age should we give them a cell phone? Where it's really, it really is, why would you give them a cell phone? That's the question first. And then the next is, um, do they have maturity, responsibility? Do they know how to be a good stewardship of, of their resources? It's stewardship and accountability issue. And we tell our kids, we, we don't do what's fair. We do what's right and good for each of you. Um, and that's what's important, that we're keeping you safe. Yeah, you know, one of the things, too, Julie, is we, I think as a culture, we've kind of lost uh, this idea that your brain's not fully formed. Right. You know, right. that's why we have ages set aside, like 18, they get to vote, mm-hmm. which might be a little early. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's a reasonable time for you to take that responsibility on. You can become informed. You know what the government should do what you think it should do and you can vote you can't drink in most states not all but 21 for the same reason so we delay certain ability uh, for them to make decisions yet in some of these areas that are so extremely harmful we just look the other way Mm. 13 14 15 when they're not capable of pushing back they're not capable of discerning these things uh, we kind of leave them out there on a limb yeah, because everybody's doing it, and mm. that's the reason we do it. Yeah, it Which, seems seems almost counterintuitive, but we're training them actually to do what you're talking about, Jim. We're we're giving kids, even in strollers, devices, right? Yeah. I mean, we're we're setting them up to understand this yeah. is a normal part of life, and you're just going to be interacting with screens. And and to some degree, there is truth in that. Right. Yeah. But how do we how do we stop? even introducing phones to kids as entertainment and babysitting devices. Yeah. Well, they, there's tons of research on how it even affects kids developmentally, that kids are now being entertained versus learning to do puzzles and things like that. And we're just not counting the cost of, of giving our kids technology too soon. And we don't want to demonize technology, but we want to understand with it comes a world of good and evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really good. I Again, I applaud Jean because she did it. You know, I think in some ways that discernment that you talked about last time, um, she just did not like television or screen time. So it was in the basement with a lot of Legos and building crafts and, you know, what are those old metal things you used to build? Erector sets. Erector sets. Yeah. I mean, they had Lego erector on. sets. We had the mousetrap kind of thing for yeah. the marbles. And I think the boys now being older, they look back on that and say, I'm so glad mom did that for us, you know, kind of forced us to use our imagination. Exactly. And don't worry about the I'm bored thing, you know, just, hey, boredom has a certain 
element of, of teaching to it that yeah. it's okay. Yeah. They don't have to be stimulated all the time. Hmm. Yeah. We go to restaurants and we have a no phones out during meal times, uh, including us. They hold us accountable too. So no phones out, but oh, we can go to restaurants. They, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they hold you accountable. And we'll point out, we'll say, guys, try to find a table in this restaurant where somebody isn't on their device. And what do you guys think about that? And they're like, yeah, we're the abnormal ones, mom. You're right. And you're going to be much more mature adults as a result of it. And you can have conversations with us and enjoy it. It's so true. It's so true. I hope that point gets across to everybody. Um, Speak to us about your counselor. You're seeing families all the time. You're teaching. Um, The mental health crisis in America with particularly teenagers, particularly with depression, anxiety, loneliness. It's so odd to me, spiritually speaking, um, that in a country that could deliver almost anything you want, and certainly anything you need, we have this epidemic of mental health crisis. So at the one level, probably the macro level, what do you think's happening? And then maybe at the spiritual level, what's happening? Yeah. Uh Again, it's way too easy to blame it on technology, but too much of the research demonstrates that that is the key, that kids on social media, really, and there's this facade of connectedness. You know, we're stuffed with ways to connect with people, but starving to truly be known. Um, And that's what's so disheartening to kids. They're not truly being known or understood or loved, but they're connected more than ever before, and yet they feel so much more disconnected. It's such an irony when you think about it. On a spiritual level, I think the further we get away from finding identity in a creator, the more we're trying to recreate our identity and the more God creates and the world corrupts, the more corrupted our identities become because we're foundationally moving away from a creator that we're made in his image and he knows us and loves us. You know, an example of that just happened to me recently. Jean and I were walking somewhere and there was a woman with a dog, which is, that's okay, that's cool. Animals are lovely. No, no, she had a baby stroller for this dog. (laughs) And the dog had the booties on, even had a bonnet on. And I'm looking at that, and then she puts the dog in this baby stroller and begins to walk with it. I'm going, oh, my gosh. This woman has totally replaced that hole in her heart to have have a child with my dog (laughs) and treating the dog like a baby. Mm-hmm. It was, but that's, I mean, that's some of the corruption of the culture you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, again, animals are great. They're not children. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, we're replacing uh, a foundational view of God and his word that informs all of life. And now man and his word is informing all of us and all of us and informing life and informing identity. And, and that's just going to have serious repercussions. The last of your three uh approaches that you mentioned last time, kind of that lean on God area that, you know, we've got to find our identity in Christ and and really trust God with our lives, even if things don't go well. I mean, that's true. Uh, But in that context, even with all the safeguards, even with the right discussions, um, some things happen and we're not going to be able to control outside forces with us and with our children. How do we prepare our kids for that kind of reality in this life that even if we do all the right things, it's no guarantee we're going to have the right outcomes? 
Yeah, when I look at Psalm 46, it says God is a very present help in trouble. He's a refuge, a very present help in trouble. It's a great example of saying God doesn't say there won't be trouble. As a matter of fact, he promises there will be tribulation and trials and hardship and suffering. And so having my kids have a realistic, in this world, there will be struggles. Now, how do you walk with the Lord in those struggles? And when he is with you, you are never, ever alone. He will give you what you need to get through those things. And that's very different than God will protect you from everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead, it's God is with you in the hard things. Well, and the reality, if we were to say God will protect you and everything, it doesn't happen that way. Something could happen or does happen. And then you could really end up uh, with a mess with your children because they they, don't understand if God loves me, why did this happen to me? Right. And that's how we end up. People think that God failed us somehow or God has failed them somehow instead of saying God gives you what you need for any moment you're in. Julie, at the end here, um, the idea of overprotection. I mean, we've got to speak to that as well. Uh, the parents that, again, everything is bubble wrap three times around, yeah. and we're watching every time a child climbs a three-foot-high brick wall and, get down, get down. We even say it with fear in our voice. Yeah. You, know, you could hurt yourself. Get away from that blender. And it's all true. Yeah. You know, those are okay cautions, but that that catastrophizing of life and the fear and anxiety that it can create speak to the parent right at the end here who may be saying well that's me i'm really engaged everything my every move my child makes i'm on top of and they are never going to face danger uh, speak to that attitude in the extreme well, it clearly, it's, it's just not helpful. And I, I put myself in that position to say, when I enter into those moments, I realize in those moments, I'm not trusting the Lord either. I'm not walking by faith. And so, yeah, I'm teaching. My job is to faithfully parent my kids. They, I'm not responsible for the outcome. I'm responsible to faithfully equip them and teach them um, and not to not to protect them from the world. That's God's job as well. So... Knowing that um, that when I get to those moments, it's my own fear and insecurity stepping in, and I'm I'm trying to be God to some degree rather than to trust God in the moment. So as parents, I think it's really important that we face our, our anxieties and fears and we take a hard look at them and say, how do I need to grow so that I don't pass this on to the next generation? And two, we've had you know enough uh, folks on the program here where they've had a devastating loss of a child. Yeah. I don't want to ignore that because yes. that's real and probably the most devastating thing yeah. that could ever happen. And they might be listening too going, yeah, but you didn't live through what we lived through. Mm-hmm. But in that grief, in that horrible situation, whatever it might be, um, God is still there. Yeah. And we may not even, we can't explain it all. And for those who think they can, they're wrong. Yeah. And we don't know why hard things happen to children. Right. It's the biggest question people ask. Mm-hmm. And so we, we just accept it and know that there's something better ahead. Yeah. And there's another life. There's eternal life with Christ. And to really embrace that can be hard. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm letting go of control and, totally. and trusting that there is a God who's ultimately in control, even of the hard things. Well, if uh, you're in that spot and the extreme, we want to be here for you. Mm-hmm. And if you're on the other end trying to bubble wrap your child, we want to be here for you, too. It's all part of the parenting journey. 
uh, A to Z. And so get a hold of us. We have caring Christian counselors who can help pray with you, turn you toward resources that will help you. We've got Julie's great book, Safeguards. It's a terrific guide for you as a parent as you're trying to make sense of this crazy world and help your child do the same. You can get that directly through Focus on the Family Canada. And when you do, all the proceeds go right back into helping families across Canada. Get the book today uh, when you call 800, the letter A in the word family. And uh, when you get in touch, donate generously as you can, please, to support the work of Focus Canada. Again, 800-A-FAMILY or stop by focusonthefamily.ca. Julie, thank you so much for being with us. It's been great. Great uh, information, great intelligence for parents to deploy to ensure that they're doing the best job they can do to safeguard their children. Thank you. Thank you. Well, join us again next time as we hear from Bill and Pam Farrell about why husbands and wives tend to think and feel very differently. So the real issue here is trust. And a lot of men are frustrated in their marriages because they don't feel like they can talk to their wives. So every time I try to bring something up with her, we, we go on this roller coaster ride. When we're done, I don't even know what we're talking about. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ.